Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey everyone, welcome to Eating Crow. I'm excited to have Dr. Brian Harmon on today's episode. Brian has achieved a lot of success on LinkedIn, building a business around helping leaders with one-to-one coaching and helping them develop their organizations. Brian's story is pretty fascinating, and he's also a pretty funny guy, but today we get serious. And what I mean is we get serious about how to use humor effectively in the workplace without overdoing it. Brian also gives us some great tips on how to stay focused, especially as we're learning to work in this new environment where... We're working at our desk, but it might be right next to the laundry room, and we've got our eye on cutting the grass or doing the dishes. So that focus is a challenge, particularly as we're all dealing with back-to-back video calls. Brian also dives into what he calls the imposter syndrome and focuses a lot on something he calls emotional culture, which I found fascinating. So without further ado, let's jump into this uh, Eating Crow episode with Dr. Brian Harmon. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Eating Crow podcast. I have the LinkedIn famous Brian Harmon with us and properly attired Cal grad cap on or Cal, you're an adjunct professor at Cal, correct? Uh, yeah, I teach there. I did not go to school there though. Right. You went to Pepperdine like for 20 years, I think. I did. Yeah. They, they just couldn't get rid of me. I'm finally you, out the door though. You know, it's funny. I have interviewed and been interviewed by three Pepperdine grads in the last two weeks. Hmm. I have no idea how that came up, but it's probably one of the most beautiful college campuses in the country, I think, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's probably also some of the most lucrative real estate in the world, (laughs) that Malibu Peninsula they got there. That's uh, Sit on that land for a while, that's for sure. These days, 90% of my time is in executive coaching, uh, one-to-one, and there's a couple other things I do more on a group format, like Mm -hmm. career coaching and other from manager to leader type group coaching, but my time, my days are spent uh, just talking to CEO founders and senior executives that are trying to figure out how can they build more trust in the workplace? How can they maximize their influence in a really caring, compassionate, empathetic way? I feel really fortunate to do this type of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do still teach academically for a few universities in uh, seminar style classes for working adults. Yeah, I'm just, I'm loving life. I have a three and a half year old son and married to my first childhood love. I, we got two dogs. So all is good in the world. You're living the dream. That's awesome. <laughs> so for those that may not know your full background, you you have a background in industry, uh, particularly the landscape industry after you started, I think you said you started a t-shirt company in your garage even earlier before that. Was there something in particular while you were there that that struck you to say, look, I, I want to help other people recognize the role of trust and coaching in their careers. What was it that, that caused you to kind of leap out of that world and into this world? It's actually a pretty sad story. So the <laughs> I'll make it as happy as I can. But Perfect. in fact, yeah, it's, it's pretty dark. Uh, what happened to me was I wanted to ask my wife now to, to marry me. So mm-hmm. we're dating for years and years, many years, I think eight years at the time. And I wanted to... Uh, go back to school because I was a three-time college dropout and I didn't figure out for myself, how am I going to be the kind of husband that can provide a future? And I, I didn't know how to do that. Yeah, so I just went back to school finally. Um, in doing that, now it was time I can ask her to marry me. So I mm-hmm. did. We got married 
And while we were out on our wedding moon, we, we got married abroad uh, in the Caribbean uh, alone, just with her parents there. And I, I started to have this really bad pain in the back of my neck. I came back and I was diagnosed with an ultra rare bone disease in my spine. And I was happy about it because this meant I could take off time from a job that I absolutely loathed. I hated it. I hated the people I worked with. I hated my boss. I hated my the, the leaders in the company. And I kept telling myself, it takes a spine, an ultra rare disease in my spine to have to realize the fact that I hate my job and I don't ever want to go back there. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's when I started putting the, the wheels together in my head about like, okay, what's the long-term path here so that I can try to not only not be a part of those companies, but help companies that are struggling with that and actually make a difference. So I do mostly work with smaller companies now that are growing. They care for people. They just don't know how to practice leadership in a way that shows that. That's interesting. And I understand you spent some time in a pharma company trying to help them change their organization to go out and solve these problems, particularly the, the you know, I think it was related to the disease you had. It was, yeah. I did finish up my time in the landscape construction industry with this bigger picture of what's really out there in the world. Mm -hmm. Since I spent 15 years in construction management and landscape, I didn't have a lot of exposure to these multi-billion dollar global multinational firms. Once I got to that biotech company though, I started to see what are some of the bigger levers that are changing how companies treat their employees. So that was a, a really big turning point for me to understand the bigger picture and how to make an impact at those larger companies as well. When you think of levers in, in that size of an organization, what would be, and let's focus on culture. We can focus on operations, product, process, profit, everything. But if you're thinking about culture and trust and growth, what are the three big levers that a large organization can pull on to drive change? A lot of them have to do with two things. The, the way that a, co uh, a company makes decisions, mm -hmm. the way they get things done, that would be their culture. And a lot of that has to do with how they learn. So having a really robust investment in the learning and development of fundamental skills, of trust, uh, a lot, even nowadays when I, when I engage with these larger corporations, they say, wait, well, you teach us how to build trust? Like, mm -hmm. is anybody doing that? I said, well, yeah, there's a, there's a few of us out there. But it's, it is still a growing field on how to teach companies how to build trust in the workplace. So that's, that's the one thing is invest in it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the other one is about the leaders. So the way we feel, that's called the climate, the climate, emotional climate at work. Ah, okay. And if we're not feeling, um, I'll boil it down to this. You can't have some awesome life and then go to a job you hate. That this doesn't happen. We're, we're one person here and at home. Uh, if you're not conscious of the emotions that you're sending your employees home with on a daily basis, and especially for the weekend as they go home to their family time, which, which is usually when people mentally check out and close out from their work week, if you're not conscious to the attitude that you're resonating in the workplace as a leader, then you're failing. It, it doesn't matter if you just, we, we hear these CEOs say things like, well, I, it's really important that I send them home in the same way they came in, referring to their physical safety. Like, yeah, we all want a physical safe workplace, but that's not enough. There's psychological safety in there too that has really been on the back burner for a lot of organizations. And I admire the ones who take that seriously and they hire and employ and train and coach these other leaders in their organization to make that 
a priority. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've been through a couple organizations that have tried to put in trust-based programs mm. uh, and failed miserably. And it's because they were checking a box. They were trying to respond to a, a trend. They recognized they had gaps and that people didn't trust them. They didn't trust the entire leadership team. When you're thinking about the word trust and you think about it from an employer's perspective versus an employee's, how do you say to an employee, you need to extend trust to this team before they've earned it? How can a leader demonstrate that trust and how can an employee recognize that it's being built? I'm, I'm glad you brought this up the way that you did because the same way that you hear about, well, you can't love others from an empty bucket. Mm -hmm. Same thing goes with trust. Trust is a reciprocal emotion. Sure. Meaning that you have to give it to get it back. And when people go around trying to get other people to trust them, it doesn't work unless you're the one giving it. So it's a, it's a very much self-perpetuating type of emotion. Mm -hmm. And so how do you, it's as simple as this. How do you practice self-trust? You make a promise to yourself and you keep it. Okay, let's take that out to scale. One step further is make a promise to yourself, tell other people about it, and then keep that promise. Uh. Then the next step is now make a promise to yourself and make a promise to other people and then declare that. So you just keep moving that out, scale it out a little, little, little by little. And then you get a leader who knows how to practice, practice interpersonal trust. So that's just self-trust, interpersonal trust. Then you have social trust, community trust, organizational trust, institutional, mm -hmm. global. Like it just scales up from there. And obviously as you have more and more people involved, leadership matters more and more as you go out right. in the bigger numbers. When you see a leader of an organization that is not one that you would characterize by high trust, it's a leadership issue, pure and simple. Sure. There's no other way about it. You can talk about external forces like coronavirus or whatever, but at the end of, of all of this is the same old thing is when I see people that trust themselves, I trust them too. And sure. here's an example, like a, a practical example from my own personal life. If I tell myself that, hey, I'm going to go on the Peloton on Saturday morning. Well, that means I can't be drinking a bottle of wine on Friday night. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to tell myself, okay, I'm not going to do that. That way I can get on the Peloton on Saturday and I can, I can go and keep that promise to myself. Now here's, that's great. Let's say I keep the promise. Awesome. I'm practicing self-trust, but what if now on Thursday night, I actually tell my wife about this. Now she knows that I've made that promise to myself as well. And mm -hmm. if I actually go, follow through and on Saturday morning, ride the Peloton bike, now she sees the self-trust that I'm practicing myself. So now it's, that's, that's a step further. Now, when I make a promise to her, she has more likelihood of believing that because she's already seen me as someone who practices self-trust. So sure. again, it's these tiny little baby steps that you make outward in order to build self-trust. And when leaders say things like, oh, we're going to be a diverse workforce. Mm -hmm. But if you're not then doing it, if you're, if you're just making these espoused promises out there and not following through in a very clear, like, observable way, then what you're saying is I can't trust those people. Sure. They say all this bullshit. They put a rainbow behind their logo, but that, what am I actually seeing? Right. So those, it's a red flag to me when companies do that stuff, because I don't care really. Why do you want the outward presence to be that? Oh, we're diverse. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. Sure. You need to make that diversity take place within your organization, within the institution that is your company. Right. So what is the sense of belonging that people have when they walk in the doors? That's 
the practice and, and value of diversity, not like some, some rainbow logo. So I love the idea of, I'll call them micro moments, right? Micro moments of trust, where if you say to someone, set a goal for yourself, and that goal might be, I'd like you to make 15 outbound calls tomorrow. Can you do that for me? And if that person says, I can do that, and you follow up tomorrow night and they made 15 calls, you've got to affirm that that was a good move. And then talk about it. You know, what kind of results did you see and start to build on it? So it's a great piece mm -hmm. of advice. And, you know, when, when you described, when I asked you at the beginning of the, the conversation, you're doing a lot more one-on-one -on -one coaching with leaders and it's helping them build trust inside their organizations. I looked at some of the papers you published and I want to ask a couple of questions that I think would be really helpful for our audience because my guess is these are tips you're providing your executives, but I want to break them down one level. How do you, what are, what are some tips you can share with leaders on how to use hum, humor to drive performance? Because I know you can use humor to drive culture and emotional climate. I'm, I love that concept. But how can you use humor to drive performance? What are your thoughts? There, there's so many cool things here. Uh, so you, the way that you can think of humor in the workplace, mm -hmm. it's really that it, it's not the thing that you're trying to get. It's just the cherry on top. It's the symptom of trust. Very good. So you don't, you don't have to try to be funny. Like that's, that's not going to lead to performance. Mm -hmm. what, you, what you do is you use the humor as when it, when it comes to the performance is the, the celebration of it. And that's very simplest form. Humor is just to make people smile. Yes, it is. So you don't have to try to be funny. You, you, you can do things a couple of different ways here. If, if here are all the behaviors that you do on a normal basis, they're either trust degrading, trust neutral, or trust building. Mm -hmm. And in, in humor, the, the problem with humor is that it's so misunderstood and misused that a lot of executives or leaders that are trying to use it to its benefit, it's actually going to hurt trust. So, so I would, the key thing here is I would say don't focus on humor. Mm. Let let that be the natural thing that happens because you've built up this trust, this so nice well bottom of the pyramid pillar. But but okay, so let, if we're actually saying so, all right, let's say we have trust. Now, what do I do on the humor side? One of my favorite things to do in my humor workshop that I do with organizations is I roast the, whoever is the highest ranking person in there to break down that power distance and reduce the hierarchy in the room. Sure. And this is all planned ahead of time. I usually mm -hmm. get pictures of them as a baby and I make fun of their name or whatever the obvious ones are. And the uh, executive is there to just take it and have a yeah. nice laugh with it. And the, those types of events, when, when you can sit in a room and just roast on the CEO guy or gal, you, you're in a place that if that's okay, you've already built that level of trust in there with that team. So you already probably have high performance. I love the answer that if trust is there, humor becomes a natural part of the process. Mm -hmm. And also there are some people that should be really cautious about using humor because it may not come across the right way. I, I would say that you should actually avoid trying to create humor in the workplace. So mm -hmm. the comedians who prepare jokes and stories, this is very one directional. It's very me as an entertainer telling you something as an audience, even if it's just you and me, it's like mm -hmm. entertainer audience style humor, collaborative humor, dialogue, witty banter, organic, spontaneous conversation. If that is funny, just think about what that means in the relationship. It, what it means is like, 
we've gotten to this place where we're so comfortable with each other where that's cool. Yeah. And it's great. Otherwise just avoid it. Like don't, you could bring the silly dad jokes and the, the all that you could do all that. That's fine. And it has its place. Uh, but yeah, I would just say, Hey, let it come naturally. And when it does come, that's actually a signal for some really cool stuff that's happening underneath the scenes there. Agreed. And it, it's just like anything else. It's like being, you know, too much of a cheerleader. Then it, at some point it, it, it just drowns itself out. You got to know when to use it and when not to use it so that it becomes credible at the time you are using it. Yeah. That's and cool. even like you said, with the using it to diffuse tension, mm -hmm. sometimes that can work against mm -hmm. what you're going for. If you want to make uh, like in constructive feedback, sometimes humor is used to lighten the load of that heavy message, mm -hmm. but it also diminishes the, the weight of the message. Yeah. So I'm sure, I'm sure you use your instincts to, to diffuse tension in certain scenarios where in others you wouldn't like with employees jobs are on the line. Okay. That's not a place for any 100%. use of humor. And then there's other times where, it, okay, this, I, I could, I could use it here. Yeah. There's no question about it. There are times when you've got to communicate the facts and the facts need to be heavy. And you, you sit on them, which by the way, I also believe because I do use humor, um, it's natural part of my personality, my communication style. When I'm not using it, people know I'm dead freaking serious. Mm. Right? So it does help. If they see Pete's delivering this with a straight face and he's dead on, I got to take this pretty seriously. When organizations have to do a staff reduction or a team member leaves in a small team, you're working with a small company, how do you help the two remaining people manage their workload? Yeah, so, so many cool things here. One is that when employees join or leave, it's a golden opportunity to build trust and build culture. Okay. If you think of it, think of it like this is when an employee leaves, there's again that is this going to be trust neutral, trust degrading or trust building? Mm -hmm. And what are some of the mechanisms in which this becomes a trust building opportunity? And one of the ways you can do that is show the employees who are staying that you've taken care of the people who left. Okay. So not when you fire people, but if you have to let go because of a downsizing, sure. there are still some really cool things you can do on a personal level as a manager or supervisor, write them a LinkedIn recommendation, write them a handwritten yep. letter or a signed letter of recommendation, get them a career coach um, as part of their severance or, or at least a resume writing program. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can send the signal to the rest of the people there that aren't being let go that, Hey, we, we want to show that this is us caring about these people as individuals for their long term, not just because they were productive employees here. There's that's two completely different scenarios. Sure. So I think, uh, companies often squander that opportunity of employees leaving by saying, well, well good riddance. Yeah. Um, and that's just really sad. People working from home. What are the tips you found successful to help these people focus? Or I'm looking at the laundry. It needs to be done. Mm -hmm. I could probably cut the grass right now. And I've got this project that I got to take care of, but I'm still in my pajamas. How are you helping these people change their game plan and think about focus? Uh, the way that the way that companies run meetings is pretty disgusting. Oh, amen. It's, yeah, it's really what it comes down to is like the, if, if meetings are the currency of how much gets done, we all we all get pulled into these meetings. And I remember years ago, just constantly just looking at my calendar in the morning, thinking, what can I remove from my calendar today? Mm -hmm. And this isn't unique to me. This is something everyone's felt from time to time. Sure. 
if there's a meeting that I need to go to that didn't require preparation, then I should not be there. Mm-hmm. It comes this this all comes down to really clarity. Um, when when I'm coaching executives on how to run and facilitate meetings, it, it's always down to the preparation. Is what's the highest possible outcome? What are the desired outputs of this meeting? And how can I really visualize what's there so that when I go into that meeting, instead of it being, oh, and also never do back-to-back meetings. This is, this is one of the biggest killers. Back-to-back meetings are what make people feel busy in their life. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if I, for just for today, before every meeting took five minutes to visualize what's the highest possible outcome of this meeting and what are two or three questions I'm going to use in order to get to that highest possible outcome. If I did that every day, all day, my meetings would become shorter, more effective, more efficient, and I'd maximize my influence within those meetings. Then you get into meeting facilitation and all that. Sure. But now if, if I'm doing that level of preparation and then everyone around me was also doing that level of preparation, we'd also be so clear on what do I need to do in this meeting to get there and then move on to the next thing. And then the other part of that is having a mental closeout. Before I go into the highest possible outcome of my next meeting, I need a break. I need a mental close. I need to walk around the building. I need to do mm-hmm. something that removes me or disassociates me with that and now put me in full focus on a single, single task for what's coming up next. Sure. And if I'm not going to do that, if we're just going to just show up to meetings willy-nilly, no preparation, no value to add, nothing to contribute, what the hell are we doing there in the first place? Yeah. So yeah. that's why I think recurring meetings are, are, are usually pretty stupid. They can either be, not all recurring meetings are bad. I mean, it's just the way that they are held. So why do a 15-minute a meeting three times a week instead of one one-hour meeting that's high impact, high value for sure. all the people involved? And yes, I had to prep for it, and the prep took an hour, but I went in there and I crushed that 45-minute or 60-minute meeting mm-hmm. instead of just showing up kind of half-assed three times a week for 15 minutes. I go, here's what I did yesterday. Right. Who, who's that benefiting? Right. Um, so I think it comes down to intent and clarity. So I do a lot of executive retreats. And okay. in these retreats, we'll get more done in one day than they had done in the previous 12 months on more important, more strategic, more long-lasting items. And it does take that focused time away without the distractions. So I, I think sometimes you almost want to do longer meetings if it means that our focus will be there. I just don't. Um, yeah, I would agree. It's, it's always the case where like a day-to-day meeting. Yeah. You can shorten from 60 to 40 minutes and get more out of it. If you bring the clarity and intent. So it comes, yeah, it takes a lot of prep. So I have like a four week discovery thing where everyone has to meet one-on-one twice. We do breakout team sessions. There's a ton of research that goes into that, making that, effective on all these different dimensions Mm. it does require the preparation and that's that's i think why you walk out of there with a year and a half of team spirit built to your point before i think when we when we have these virtual meetings a lot of companies right now are still running off energy that was pre-built from before coronavirus so we're kind of drilling out of that it's it's mostly evaporated or completely dissipated in in some areas of the workforce now, it's like, okay, well, we need to build that back up. And so I do these very explicit team building events to kind of jumpstart that stuff back into 
hmm. effect so that when people do start coming back into the office, hopefully, uh, who knows when, uh, that, that there is a serious approach to getting that energy back, that team spirit back, because you, you never want to have a Ferrari without gasoline. And, and that team spirit is the gasoline. How do you do that virtually? Do you run these uh, events uh, over a Zoom call? Yeah, yeah. So on Friday, actually, I did an all-day retreat. And literally all we did in this leadership team is talk about our personal stories. No kidding. Yeah. And after each one of them, it's like, oh, my God. I had no idea that's what your life story was. And then the next person would go and be like, oh, my God. Like, what? How did we not know any of this? Yeah. And so that's that's just one thing about today is you have to be a lot more deliberate about those those water cooler interactions that are just not happening anymore. I think exactly. you, micro moments, did you call them? Yeah, I did. Yep. Yeah. So those knowing that those aren't happening, those are the magical moments that build up the climate and the culture. So now that we don't have those, what are we going to do about it? And um, there's some companies that do it really well. I've seen some things come out of Salesforce. Uh, a lot of my students and clients are from Salesforce okay. and I'm just amazed. They have these little competitions and all these little things that they're building those moments. So where a lot of companies took a dump on culture once coronavirus hit and we all went remote, um, they had a plan. They had a really good plan. And they're, mm -hmm. they're working on ways to keep those, those micro moments in play, uh, even virtually. What impact do you think the uh, prior view and trust level inside that organization had when people rolled out this kind of new plan? Because to me, back to the uh, authentic nature, right? If I'm trusting the leadership team at Salesforce or whatever division at Salesforce you're talking about and COVID hits and they come out with the programs to build, you know, these different things up. If I don't have a level of trust already, I'm inherently, in, you know, highly skeptical. Mm -hmm. So what level do you think that the impact of trust had on, on those things being as successful as you see them being successful? People, people can't be bullshitted. They know, yeah. they know, they see right through all the crap. If this is, if this is something real, if it's from the heart, if it aligns with our purpose, our vision, our values, whatever it is. And if, mm -hmm the uh these types of teams are or let's say let's say that you're in a you're in a bad spot and you're you're coming now into an, a coronavirus situation it's just going to get worse but the teams who already had high trust they're yeah. they're going to have a, a better ability to adapt to change mm -hmm. they're going to deal with ambiguity in a much more healthy way than Big companies word. who don't mm -hmm. yeah so the this, this whole idea that external factors can can kill our business just means we weren't doing the right thing to begin with yeah and I, you, you can see it the companies that are successful right now these are high trust organizations high trust teams um they've been working on the the potential coronavirus thing all along we're just doing it in a different way by, yeah. by building the the change into the culture yeah, I totally agree that the the fact that you did an eight hour, you know, team building event where you told personal stories to me drives at a big word, which is empathy. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I now understand your personal story, Brian, it helps me realize when you approach a situation a certain way, you can talk disc profiles, you can talk all sorts of things, right? But it helps me understand your perspective, which is a big word. Um, I understand why you'd approach that. I can I can think about presenting the information differently, or I can leverage the fact that you come at this with a completely different experience or perspective. I think that's great, right? Hey, Brian, I'm I'm thinking about this problem. I'm not I'm only seeing it from my perspective. What do you think? And when you get three or four opinions in you know in the room, then you tend to come up with hopefully a better solution than if you'd approached it yourself. 
Yeah. Em- empathy is hard. This is not an easy thing to tackle. No. Uh, we, most of us aren't even self-aware, let alone can manage that awareness into a way to manage ourselves, Sure. let alone now do that for other people. I mean, this, the word empathy gets thrown around a lot as a buzzword, but it's, it's really like the X games of, of interpersonal interaction. This is not easy stuff. Am I empathetic all the time? Hell no. It's like this, you're asking too much of me. And so I think that we're trying to get companies to be seen as empathetic. uh, That's the long game. And if you're not even paying men and women the same, you don't have equality. Well, how are you going to get empathy? Empathy is something that is achieved when you have a perfect level of admiration with between two people. So if you and I admire each other, mm-hmm. not only do we not let each other down, which is basic trust and reliability, but we actually want each other to be more successful than even we are ourselves. That's empathy. That's me valuing you as a person, your diversity, your differences from me, our sense of belonging with each other. Are companies doing that? No, no, man. There's not. You can look at almost any organization in the world and, and outside of like a couple small business examples here and there, there's no real equality out there. There's no real empathy out there. Um, it's it's kind of built into the nature of capitalism too, in some sense. It is. When you're in a performance-based, numbers-based world, there's a little room for empathy because results matter. In my studies of leaders, which I've done many, some of the most successful people I've seen have zero empathy. It's it, It's been a personal struggle for me in and understanding emotional intelligence, the use of empathy. I love your your concept of emotional culture and trying to figure out how to coach leaders to create environments where people can feel valued. You can you can be empathetic. The personal stories thing, right? That that has to naturally build a connection to someone that you didn't have before. You're giving them a gift, truly, is is hey, this isn't the right fit. Sometimes when when companies keep employees too long, yeah. you're, you're doing that person, a, a human being, a huge disservice Agreed. by letting them just linger along. It's like, it's like leading on a, an, an ex-girlfriend or something like mm-hmm. it, it's, you got to talk straight and you got to give them the, the reality. And you're doing it from, if you're doing it from a place of care and, and empathy as you are, um, that really is a gift. I, I've been let go. Uh, I was laid off in 2008 um, I've been fired before. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, there's, there's sometimes where I've walked away with like a huge severance, but really just disappointment. Yeah. And there's other times when I've walked away with nothing, but a smile on my face. Sure. And the, the difference between those two individuals, those two leaders who let me go was empathy. There's, yeah. um, like, like there's some preparedness that you can do. There is some preparation work you can do on your side to figure out, like, how can I make this the least painful thing possible for this person? And that's why I was telling you before that even when employees leave, even when they get fired, it can be a trust building behavior. Sure. Um, it, it, it certainly can be. And I, I, I love the analogy of you have to have the right people on the bus, particularly at the right time. Some people forget that last part, right? So mm-hmm. small organizations, you're dealing with these high growth companies there is a natural culture change when you get from zero to 50 people. It's been studied and I've experienced it. At 50 people, something just changes. The closeness to the organization, you start to have to learn people's names. There's things that naturally occur. We get to 100, 200, all those things change. And there are some people that are really, really good when it's you and a dog in the garage building your company. 
they can do just about anything. But when it gets to the point where you've got to scale and apply discipline and other practices, they may not be the right person on the bus. I've had that conversation with co-founders before, like, hey, this is, you know, at lunch, they said, is this the talk? I said, yeah, this is this is the talk. <laughs> we, we knew it was coming. And they shift back into another organization where they're in the garage grinding and crushing it. They're the best in the world at it. And they don't want to be involved in scale. And to your point, we're doing, I would be doing them a disservice and they me a disservice if we recognize we're not the right time in the bus together. So uh, thinking about the right way to have those discussions certainly requires, I think, thoughtful outside counsel, whether I'm not talking legal, but, you know, consultants, HR people who can have you step back for a minute because you're in the middle of it. Sometimes you don't, you're, you're, you need somebody who says, Hey, take a deep breath. Here's how we can handle this and, and walk you down the process. Mm-hmm. So Brian, I don't want to, we could, I could talk with you till, you know, till Friday, when you're looking at your business today, mm-hmm. what are the three topics that you are asked to look at the most? What are the three things that executives and small companies are concerned about? There's a lot of this, this underlying theme in all of my work and it's self-awareness. Mm. A lot of people have imposter syndrome a lot of people deal with self-defeating thoughts. A lot of people that are in management level positions deal with feelings of anxiety, feelings of depression. And even me personally, I've faced with that before as well. And I think sure. that the biggest thing that I'm, I'm asked today is, um, you know, what can, what can I do better uh, to make sure that people know that they're appreciated um, and that's a good question. I mean, I'm happy when I hear this question. It's like the the CEO co-founders, the founders that I work with, if they have had a lot of their wins, their wins in the past come from product or um, things like that, you know, big milestones within what they're offering to their clients. But then when when they get to that 50 headcount, and now they're like, oh, we we got to actually start talking about this other stuff that's going on like wait mm-hmm. wait we've never really focused on culture and we've never done this when they start asking those questions it's really a beautiful thing because they they realize that they don't want financial success alone because that at what cost are you willing to do that they want success for individuals on a holistic level yeah. um so that's i think the big thing for me is like hey we're doing well now we got some some runway or some some room to breathe. How do we now kind of change the, the narrative of our company to be one where people love to be here? Mm. We love to have them. We're invested in their growth. They don't want to leave. Like that's, uh, that's a cool place to be. And it's fun to be in organizations like that when you can tell the people around you want to be there and support each other. And it's rare too, right? It's, uh, it's, the, it's the unicorn, man. It is. It's rare. It's really rare. Well, Brian, I couldn't... Uh, couldn't be more grateful for your time today, particularly you're sitting in a customer's conference room. So that's commitment, buddy. Awesome. Thank you, Peter. Always yeah, a pleasure. To you soon. Take you care. Right. Bye. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Brian Harmon. If you'd like to reach out to Brian, his contact information, LinkedIn profile, website, all the vitals are in the show notes. And thanks again for tuning in. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video. 